related deaths. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Radio 3, live on the web, rthk.org.hk. Money Talk. Good morning and welcome to the final Money Talk of the Week on Radio 3. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Friday the 2nd of September. This is Peter Lewis with the day's business headlines. Activity in China's private manufacturing sector unexpectedly fell into contraction last month. The Kaishin PMI manufacturing index fell to 49.5 in August from 50.4 in July, hitting the lowest since a two-month lockdown in Shanghai was lifted in June. The Chinese city of Chengdu, the capital of Sichuan province, will lock down its 21 million residents to contain a new COVID-19 outbreak. The lockdown commenced from last night after authorities reported 157 new COVID cases. Mass testing began yesterday evening and residents must stay home indefinitely, the city government said. Hong Kong Chief Executive John Lee said Thursday he's received the green light for a reverse quarantine programme to restart travel into the mainland after two years of border closures. Under the plan, residents planning to travel to the mainland will quarantine in Hong Kong first and then enter the mainland without the need for further quarantines. Borrowing rates in Hong Kong have surged to the highest level in 14 years. The three-month Hong Kong interbank offered rate climbed three basis points to 2.68% on Thursday. That's the highest since the 2008 global financial crisis. And U.S. semiconductor manufacturer NVIDIA said Wednesday that it's been told by the U.S. government to stop selling two of its computer chips used for artificial intelligence in China and Russia. And AMD, whose chips are also used as accelerators for AI calculations, said it had also been told that it would need to apply for licenses to sell its most advanced accelerator in China. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Andrew Ferris of Econosis Advisory and Lashar at BBVA, with a view from India, is Toby Lawson from Society General India. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street overnight, the Dow and S&P 500 made a comeback, rebounding from steep losses to close in positive territory. The S&P 500 rallied a third of a percent to 3,967 after trading lower for most of the day. The Dow, which was down almost 300 points at the low point of the day, turned positive in the final minutes of trading to close 146 points higher at 31,656. The Nasdaq Composite fell 0.3% to 11,785, posting its first five-day losing streak since February. Shares of NVIDIA closed 7.7% lower after the company said in an SEC filing that the US government is restricting sales of high-performance AI chips to China and Russia. European stocks sank for a fifth consecutive day. The Pan-European Stock 600 index closed 1.8% lower. London's FTSE 100 was down 1.9%. Chinese stocks sank on the first day of trading in September following the Kaishin report which showed manufacturing unexpectedly contracted in August, the shooting down of a Chinese drone by Taiwanese forces and the lockdown of Chengdu. The Hang Seng Index tumbled 357 points or 1.8% to a one-week low of 19,597. The Tech Index dropped 1.6% on top of its August losses of 1.3%. 
the Shanghai Composite fell half a percent to 3,185. Oil prices continued their slide, with Brent crude oil settling 2.3% lower at $92.36 a barrel. Gold dropped below $1,700 and is at $1,697 an ounce this morning. The two-year U.S. Treasury yield topped 3.5%. That's the highest level since November 2007. And the 10-year yield rose six basis points to 3.26%. That's the highest since June the 22nd of this year. In the currency markets, the US dollar index is at a 20-year high of 109.67, having hit almost 110 earlier in the day. The dollar has risen above 140 against the Japanese yen for the first time since 1998. It's trading at 114.11 right now. And the euro has slipped below parity once again. It's trading at 99.5 cents. Sterling which in August had its worst month since the 2016 Brexit referendum, continues to slide. It was down 4.5% in August and has dropped another 0.6% overnight to $1.15.5 and 9 Hong Kong dollars and 6 cents. The Chinese yuan is at 6.91.5 in offshore markets and Bitcoin is down half a percent at $20,100. And not a pretty picture once again around Asia-Pacific equities. Uh, the SX200 down about 0.1%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan is flat. The Cosby actually is up. It's uh, risen about half a percent, um, but it looks like a flat open once again for the Hang Seng in about an hour and a half's time. It's 8.09, time to say good morning to our regular Friday commentator, Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. And also with us is Lashar, Asia Chief Economist at BBVA. Morning, Shark. Morning, Peter. Uh, let's start with more data on the Chinese economy. Activity in China's private manufacturing sector unexpectedly fell into contraction last month. The Kaishin PMI Manufacturing Index fell to 49.5 in August from 50.4 in July. That's the lowest since a two-month lockdown in Shanghai was lifted in June. And just a reminder that a reading below 50 indicates contraction. Economists were forecasting a reading of 50.2. And... Um, that on the uh, sorry, and that uh, follows the official manufacturing PMI released by the National Bureau of Statistics the day before, which showed activity in the largest state-owned manufacturing sector contracted for the second straight month in August. Um, Andrew and Shark, what do you make of the economic recovery at the moment in uh, in China? Is it losing momentum? Oh, Peter, I hate to contradict you. You know the, the PMI indexes are diffusion indexes, and if they fall below fifty, they do not repeat, do not indicate contraction. It's simply a diffusion exchange that asks a number of people whether things are getting better or worse. The ratio, if it is over 50, it means that more than 50% thinks, think that their things are getting better. And if it is below 50%, thinks that the majority of the people think that things are getting worse. They think they're getting better or worse. It doesn't mean contraction of any kind. It's not good news. 
Okay, but it it's is... a contraction in the index. To be fair, that's what it well, means. Thank that's how you. Look at it. That much, much better. Yeah, but I'm afraid I don't want to be nitpicking. But <laughs> when somebody tells me the PMI is below 50 and that is a contraction in the Chinese economy, the answer is, is no, it ain't. So what is it telling us about the Chinese economy then? <laughs> the, the index fell below 50. Yeah. Well, anyway, this is I'm, I'm being facetious. Yes, it is telling you that uh, expectations and uh, mood and. Uh, uh, Looking forward to this is a forward-looking index, which is very important. They're getting worse, of course. Are you surprised? Uh, now, Chengdu is under lockdown. I've forgotten. It's 14 million people. 21 million. 21. I'm sorry. What's seven million between friends? Uh, indefinitely, it's it it cannot possibly be good news. I think the, uh, Andrew make a very good point. That means uh, this uh, PMI contraction doesn't necessarily mean the economy is in contraction. But at the same time, it at least reflects people's. Uh, uh, this kind of uh, confusion, right, about the future. I think that's uh, more dangerous. And uh, in addition to this kind of uh, bad expectation for the future, I also find this kind of uh, uh, PMI data in China is quite in line with uh, uh, other countries' uh, PMI in the region. That means uh, maybe the global demand, they have some kind of change. We have seen the Chinese export sector perform very good over the past uh, two years. It mm. has been uh, underpinning the, the Chinese growth and the recovery. But at this moment, if we feel that uh, the US, the, the Europe, they, they already have the inflation problem, okay, uh, many people expect they are going to have a recession very soon. So in that case, I think these export sectors in China and also in uh, other countries uh, in the same region, they start to slow down. Uh, that's not good news for China. So that means uh, all these negative factors put together, people now in China, uh, for these producers or consumers, uh, they all have a, a very negative uh, outlook for the future. Yeah. I mean, consumers in particular, um, it seems that demand is quite weak, doesn't it? Because presumably they're affected by the, the slumping property markets. So even though we've had all these stabilizing measures that the government has announced or hoping to stabilize the economy, it doesn't seem to be helping cons consumers that much. Uh, personally, I'm not that uh, optimistic about this uh, kind of uh, uh, loosening measures because uh, now you limit people. Okay, mm. people cannot uh, flow as before, so it's not good consumer sector. At the same time, if you don't make adjustment to this uh, COVID anti-COVID measures in China, I'm afraid these uh, people's uh, negative uh, mood sentiment will stay there for a longer time. Yeah. It's, it's strange that the Chinese authorities have not given some thought to actually putting in actually cash on the table. You know, show me the money, as the film said it, because the United States did it at the beginning of the COVID. Uh, it was something like at the beginning of the COVID expansion, it was something like a thousand US dollars in checks were sent to, uh, to several millions of people. Of course, Hong Kong has done it uh, very successfully. I'm not quite sure the overall impact on the economy, but at least it has a moral impact, and so did Singapore. So I know it's a little bit of a, of a troublesome notion that 1.3 million people are going to receive either through their octopus cards or their bank accounts a, a sum of money. But I think saying that we're going to spend more money on airports, on, uh, on railways uh, and on ports, okay, means absolutely nothing to the average consumer because infrastructure expenditure, which was the core part of the announcement uh, last week and actually in the month before that, it's going to take years before it goes through.
Mm. And the, the Chinese government does, you're right, does seem very, very reluctant uh, to hand out cash. It sort of sees it as free money, doesn't it, which is sort of undeserved. But would it work in a, a country as big as China? Well, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I haven't seen concrete evidence, which does not mean that there is no concrete evidence. It means that Andrew Freyris hasn't seen it. The impact that the octopus give out in Hong Kong had made a diff- significant difference on consumer spending. I would love to see this because I actually, I, I personally approve, not because I only got uh, money in my pocket, but because in cases of real emergency like this one, of real things that are happening on top of you continuously, spending more on airports and, and schools is, is almost irrelevant to the average person. Yeah, I, I think the Andrew is a perfect right. I think that uh, China need to do that one. It's at least it's very effective to ease the short-term pain, right? Mm-hmm. And then you can find the long-term solution. Now I think uh, in U.S., in Europe, they initially they all do this kind of uh, uh, cash handout, and then now uh, they they gradually to ease this. Uh, uh, restrictions when they find this uh, COVID-19 is not that terrible, okay, mm. at this moment. Uh, but China, I think uh, maybe it's uh, related to their philosophy, <laughs> okay, mm. but they don't want to do this one. They just don't they, like it, do they? Yeah, they just don't like they, it. They just have a very strong uh, preference not to do mm. it, <laughs> maybe. You don't, you don't give people money for nothing, yes. Now, the Chinese city of Chengdu, which is the capital of Sichuan province, is gonna, has already locked down its 21 million residents from last night. They were given about six hours notice of the lockdown. And uh, it's, there's going to be three rounds of mass testing uh, over the next three days. The province of Sichuan is also suffering from the worst heat wave and drought in 60 years. Uh, several uh, foreign firms are based in Chengdu, including Toyota, Volkswagen China, Foxconn and Intel. They all have facilities uh, in the city. So give me an idea um, of the economic impact um, of this, because um, Sichuan is, a, is an important province, isn't it? It's a centre uh, for uh, solar panels and lithium manufacturing. What's the impact going to be uh, on the economy overall of this, do you think? Uh, yes, I think the Sichuan is a very important manufacturing base uh, in the uh, in the uh, western part of the China. Uh, so, in terms of the, its uh, uh, importance uh, to national economy, of course, it's cannot comparable to to Shanghai. But uh, still, for this, uh, we calculate for this uh, high end manufacturing in China, I think Sichuan had market share more than 10%. So that means mm. in some kind of the supply chain, the value chain, especially for these high-end manufacturing goods, for, for laptops, for uh, autos, and for uh, air, airplane, okay, in, China, uh, in Sichuan, they also have a, a manufacturing base for airplane. So all these ones, they are going to be affected. Mm. Uh, but comparatively, uh, it's not comparable to Shanghai. Uh, to some degree, I think, uh, uh, of course, I'm very uh, synthetic to, to Sichuan people. But uh, if you see so many important uh, manufacturing base and important cities in China, they have been affected by these uh, anti-COVID measures. Maybe more and more people, they can directly feel the impact of these kind of uh, anti-COVID policies. Hopefully that can prompt the, the authority to make some change in future. And that is what makes COVID uh, so particularly 
both important and unimportant, because it is totally unpredictable. So in other words, I, you know, I, I keep saying to my clients, uh, please forget about looking trends in GDPs and uh, PMIs, because COVID can simply throw all of the stuff straight out of the window with, with no notice. Mm. Unfortunately, the, the virus uh, doesn't follow cyclical patterns. You, know, you sneeze and, and it changes the direction. I know it's not exactly a profound uh, comment to make, but uh, uh, as my colleague here uh, emphasizes, you know, it really has direct impact on manufacturing and completely out of the bloom. Mm. Here you are, you're at home and then you can't go out for two months. Wow. I suppose the other big impact of this is that because the government's the local governments hasn't given any information on how long this is going to last. We know there's going to be at least three days of mass testing. Just the, the impact it has on confidence, particularly in the consumer sector, it's really damaging for confidence across the whole country, isn't it? Yes, I, th I think so. Remember when Shanghai, they started this kind of lockdown. Initially, they said only seven days and then mm. <laughs> become two weeks two, and then and four two weeks. Almost, yeah, two it? months in total, total. I think the the people there in Sichuan must be get very panic. Okay, they don't know how long this kind of the shutdown will last. According to other city experience, I I'm afraid that at least uh, two weeks, at mm -hmm. least two weeks. Yeah, you were lucky. Now, U.S. semiconductor manufacturer NVIDIA said Wednesday it's been told by the U.S. government to stop selling two of its computer chips used for artificial intelligence in China and Russia. The company said it was applying for a license to continue some Chinese exports. It doesn't know whether the U.S. government will grant an exception. AMD, whose chips are also used as accelerators for AI calculations, said it has also been told that it would need to apply for licenses to sell its most advanced accelerator in China. Andrew, you probably remember in the 1970s, the global economic battles were all about oil, weren't they? Exactly. Is, tech, is technology now the new oil and chips the new oil? Yeah, and much, much as my huge sympathies are not definitely with Putin's invasion of, uh, of, of the Ukraine, which is an altogether different matter, you know, the weaponization of commodities uh, is uh, here at home. And, of course, the uh, United States cannot possibly on a purely metaphysical intellectual level uh, tell Putin that he is weaponizing gas and at the same time the United States possibly is weaponizing microchips. Yeah, I, I, it, it's, unfortunately it is not a matter of uh, agreeing with Putin or disagreeing with Putin or agreeing with the states. At the time of war everything is fair and mm. although there is no war between the United States and China there is definitely elbowing competition and uh, here you go. You don't switch off uh, gas here, you switch off uh, sales of uh, microchips. Ta-da! It's very sad, but realistic. Shark, how damaging is this to China's tech sector, do you think? Uh, I think uh, for this individual action, we don't know, but uh, uh, I think a few years ago we did some uh, uh, research about how this uh, technical uh, decoupling or technical war against China, how this damaging mm. to the entire economy. We have uh, estimated that uh, this kind of uh, uh, technical boycott from United States they will have a negative impact uh, in terms of the GDP, negative 0.7% on Chinese GDP growth. Yeah, I think the, 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 uh, the size is, uh, is very big. Yeah. Now, where does Taiwan fit into all of this? There's been another um, uh, visit from a U.S. official, this time the governor of the state of Arizona, Doug Ducey is the latest in a string of senior officials from the US to visit the island. Taiwan Semiconductor, which is the world's largest chip maker, is constructing a $12 billion plant in Arizona. 
Taiwan's leader Tsai Ing-wen said yesterday she is looking forward to producing what she calls democracy chips <laughs> with the US. So where, what's China's place, uh, Taiwan's place in all of this and democracy chips? What do you make of that? Uh, again, it is the, a, a very, well, let's say a much more sophisticated way of weaponizing, weaponizing commodities. And of course, purely looking at it from the point of view of uh, Taiwan, it says, uh, all right, we have a few things that uh, we can shake at uh, China. And one of it is a dominant position, more than 30% of the world's microchip mm-hmm. are produced in Taiwan. But this time, should you decide to invade, then uh, the major position of the production is going to be your worst nightmare. It's going to be in the United States. Uh, I know it is. It, it almost may sound childish because, of course, Taiwan has made enormous investments in China. Mm. <laughs> let's, not, let's not forget this. But there you go. Shark, we don't often talk about the Taiwanese economy, but um, what, what's the outlook for Taiwan? Uh, I think that if you look at the Taiwan's economy, they still perform very good, especially in the first half of the year because of this kind of the chip shortage, right? Mm. Globally, uh, they have a very good performance in export sectors. Uh, uh, but now I think uh, their economy is going to slow down because uh, this uh, kind of uh, geopolitical, geopolitical tension with China, mainland, and also uh, now this uh, kind of the cheap shortage has been largely eased. Now, even people, they said that they have too much. They have some redundant uh, chips uh, uh, stocks. Uh, so I think that they will slow down uh, just in line with uh, other uh, countries in the region because uh, this is a kind of a trend, okay, for, for the region. Uh, it's an export-oriented uh, economy. Uh, so if uh, global demand slow down, I don't think that Taiwan, they can have a very good performance in and, the second uh, half. Peter, I might yeah. live to regret this because because I've been telling my clients that one of my favorite sectors in this particular odd period of uh, time in the world is the defense sector, because, of course, countries mm-hmm. are now spending more than ever on defense. And, of course, guess what? Defense equals microchips. And China, Taiwan is literally in the middle of that. Now, not okay. every microchip that is produced in China goes into guided missiles, but a substantial amount. So, for example, Korea mm-hmm. has been doing absolutely great in defense sales and uh, so if or started slowly also in Taiwan. Okay. I know selling, selling weapons might not be a, a morally clean issue, but unfortunately that's a reality. Okay, have a good weekend. That's Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, Lashar, Asia Chief Economist at BBVA. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Times 8.25, on the phone from Mumbai is Toby Lawson, the CEO of Society General India. Morning, Toby. Yeah, good morning, Peter. Now, India's economy grew 13.5% in the second quarter, rebounded sharply from the 4.1% pace seen in the first three months of the year, but it was below economists' average forecasts of about 15.2%. So what do you make of it, Toby? Was it a good number or not? Yeah, it's a good number, but and uh, but essentially, yes, as you quite rightly point out, due to base effect, it's quite high, 13.5%. RBI themselves were estimating 16.2%, so on that basis, it's below the expectation, but a good number all the same, highlighted primarily by um, services sector, the sector that's obviously had a lot of impact uh, negatively over the last couple of years, but uh, in this quarter, 25% uh, return on the 
on the, on the court of the court of view on uh, services which are the high contact areas and this is reflected as well in the high frequency indicators you know gst electricity consumption mobility etc so all in all a good number but definitely below what uh, the rbi had predicted Okay. Now, I want to talk with you about uh, the markets in August, because it really was a very mixed bag. Some big outperformers, some big underperformers. The two big asset classes that did well in August. First of all, the US dollar. My goodness, what a what a performance for that. And it's just broken through today, 140 um, against the yen. There seems to be no stopping the dollar at the moment. Yeah, I, was with, it was, I saw the dollar start to creep back up. It had a little dip. And euro got back up over uh, over par, uh, back down and under par. But it was really the yen, which has been the major one that's uh, has depreciated. So it is quite interesting to watch the dollar it is going uh, gangbusters. Um, what I'll be looking forward tonight out of the uh, out of the US will be the payrolls, uh, which will uh, be interesting because it's the last of the sort of big data before the preset meeting of FOMC, uh, where they expect seventy five. Um, in August, we saw a pullback in stocks around 4% from the, the previous good run in, in June. So I think the market's sort of pivoting itself ready for hopefully a, a, a reasonably strong employment number, but with a much tighter Fed uh, profile. So plenty to look out for, plenty of volatility still there. Uh, and, um, you know, no real certainty as to where we're going to end uh, up on inflation or growth for this matter. Now, the other big performer in August, natural gas, European natural gas futures rose almost 26% over the month. That leaves prices up almost fivefold on their levels a year earlier. There was a smaller rise in the US, up about 11%. Um, this is disastrous, isn't it, for uh, economies, particularly in Europe? Yeah, I just think some of those, some of the commodity markets, particularly in the derivatives, so can be really tricky, you know. Uh, and you do see, I think we have had historically some some fairly aggressive moves in natural gas prices, both at the spot and futures level. So I'll be interested to keep an eye on that over to see what whether it sort of steadies or whether it's a it's a bit of a flow driven uh, play. Um, but it is, it's significant, and it does reflect clearly concerns about the winter coming up in Europe and the supply of gas. So it's not surprising, but. The actual volume and the, and the move is, seems, you know, almost a bit too crazy. But uh, and uh, I think the natural gas market historically has had some fairly interesting moves in it. So let's have a look at it over the next couple of months. But it certainly reflects investors' view that uh, energy prices are going to stay elevated, particularly going into European winter. Now the big losers. First of all, sovereign bonds in Europe they were down over five percent. Uh, gilts in the UK even worse, down over eight percent. In the US, a bit of an outperformance, but still falling. US Treasuries down two point six percent. Presumably, uh, this is all to do with hawkish central banks for after Jackson, uh, Jackson Hole. Yeah, I thought the Jackson Hole was was pretty. Yeah, I think we were looking for the word assertive. We almost got uh, aggressive from uh, Powell, so the market really got a clear message. We've noticed uh, in the in the states like this where we can US bonds it's the yield curve that's steepened quite a bit, so probably from in the you know low forties back to twenty five between twos and tens. So what that's saying is that, that uh, um, quite possibly that uh, you know even if the short end is starting to tap out a little bit in terms of view, uh, it's starting to feed into the long end expectations on yield. So overall, I think you'll see through the dollar and through bonds that uh, rates are staying high and most likely going higher than what people expect. Okay, and finally equities. It was a, a month or two halves, wasn't it, really? They did well in the first half of the month, but then gave up all their gains and more in the second half of August, leaving uh, the S&P 500 down over 4%, and the euro stocks 
600 in Europe, down over 5%. Uh, again, presumably all linked to faster rate hikes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think the market got a little excited uh, post-June uh, uh, and July was a, was a sort of summer of love for the equity market um, to some extent um, and reality kicked back uh, thanks to the Fed um, in the back half of August. Uh, September is always a tricky month historically for stocks, so we'll watch it closely. Um, firstly, led into central bank meetings again post-summer, uh, inflation data, and as I mentioned earlier, the employment data tonight um, will be interesting to sort of set a marker for what the Fed are likely to do in September. Toby, thanks very much. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Society General India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Around Asian markets in Australia, the SX200 is flat. The Nikkei 225 in Japan is down 0.1%. Cosby in South Korea up 0.4%. And it's looking like a flat open for the Hang Seng in just under an hour's time. Thank you very much for listening this week. Do have a great weekend. Please join me again on Monday morning. Coming up after the news in a moment is Back Chats with Janice Wong and Andrew Work. Uh, the weather forecast, very hot and dry during the day. Maximum temperature around 34 degrees. That very hot weather warning is back in force. Uh, it's going to be fine and very hot and dry during the day in the next few days. Temperature right now, 27 degrees, 70% relative humidity. 31. Here's Andrew Shrosky with the Half Hour News. Thank you, Peter. Children as young as five may soon need to use the government's vaccine pass to enter restaurants and other premises as officials look for new ways to try to boost the COVID vaccination rate. The Center for Health Protection's Dr. Chuang Shukwan said officials will soon give details on how they're to be included in the scheme, although there will be a two-month grace period. RTHK's Vanessa Chang spoke to some parents to gauge their reaction. If the kids five years old should have the pass to go to the restaurant, that means they also need to have the mobile phone. Then I think this is not reasonable and crazy. I think it's a little bit troublesome because for kids with such a young age, I'm afraid a lot of parents will have concern to have them get vaccination. I'm not sure how popular the policy will be among the parents. Hong Kong's daily COVID tally has passed the 10,000 mark with the Center for Health Protection reporting 10,586 new infections yesterday, 244 of them imported. Just over 2,600 coronavirus patients are in hospital with 14 in intensive care. A 15-month-old girl is also critical. Dr. Chuang Shukwan says case numbers are continuing to rise. We still have an increasing trend of the number of confirmed cases. So the number of cases exceeding 10,000 is within our expectation. The proportion of severe and death cases has not yet been increased. But of course, the absolute num number has been increasing uh, because of the increasing in the denominator. We will be closely monitoring the situation and we are um, more concerned about the the burden to the hospital authority, the, the bad numbers and the uh, services. Authorities also reported another 11 COVID-related deaths. Overseas, the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency says his team will maintain a presence at the Russian-held Zaporizhia power plant in Ukraine following a preliminary inspection. Rafael Grossi, who has since left with some of his colleagues, said he remained worried about the stability of the plant, which has been put at risk by shelling. We are not going anywhere. The IEA is now there, is at the plant, and it's not moving. It's going to stay there. 
We're going to have a continued uh, presence there uh, at the plant with uh, some of my experts. And of course, now we have, uh, with my team here, we have a lot of work in terms of a detailed analysis of some of the more technical aspects of what we saw. More than 20 million people in the mainland city of Chengdu have been ordered to stay indoors following an outbreak of COVID. It remains unclear whether the measure will be lifted once the mass testing operation is finished on Sunday. It's the biggest mainland city to be locked down since controls were imposed in Shanghai earlier this year. Other major cities, including Shenzhen, Guangzhou, Tianjin and Dalian, have also stepped up COVID restrictions this week. You're listening to the news on RTHK. It says children.